The Book of Jacob When Nephi was approximately 72 years of age, he selected his younger brother Jacob to succeed him in supervising the spiritual affairs of the Nephites. Jacob was probably about 18 years younger than Nephi. He was born after Lehi's colony had left Jerusalem. In fact, it appears that he must have been born during a period of much tribulation, and as a child he suffered great afflictions and much sorrow, it says, because of the rudeness of his older brethren. Nevertheless, Jacob was greatly blessed of the Lord, and while still in his youth he beheld the Savior, he saw the days of his ministry and vision. And after reaching America, Lehi instructed Jacob to follow Nephi. And when the colony split up, Jacob loyally carried out this instruction to accompany Nephi into the wilderness. Sometime later, Jacob was called of God and ordained after the manner of the holy order of the priesthood. He was consecrated by Nephi. Jacob was given an assignment by Nephi to read and explain portions of Isaiah to the people. And in this exposition, Jacob revealed a most profound knowledge of Scripture and also a prophecy. He could teach the Nephites those things which went clear back to the creation of the world. During his dissertation, he revealed that an angel had appeared to him just before his sermon and gave him more details concerning the ministry of Christ than he had known before. And we learn that he also knew many facts concerning the future of America as a result of these visitations. In 544 B.C., when Jacob would have been around 54 years of age, Nephi turned over the small plates of Nephi to him. This was one of the greatest scriptural treasures in existence. And this is where the book of Jacob begins. Now, the book of Jacob, chapter 1. For behold, it came to pass that fifty and five years had passed away from the time that Lehi left Jerusalem. Wherefore Nephi gave me, Jacob, a commandment concerning the small plates upon which these things are engraven. And he gave me, Jacob, a commandment that I should write upon these plates a few of the things which I considered to be most precious that I should not touch, save it were lightly, concerning the history of this people, which are called the people of Nephi. For he said that the history of his people should be engraven upon his other plates, and that I should preserve these plates, and hand them down unto my seed from generation to generation. And if there were preaching which was sacred, or revelation which was great, or prophesying, that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates, and touch upon them as much as it were possible, for Christ's sake and for the sake of our people. We should note in passing that Jacob was instructed to engrave on these plates only those revelations which he felt were great. One almost automatically reacts to this statement by asking, Are not all revelations of God great? As a direct communication from heaven, we should say yes, but in the economy of heaven, the Lord has always felt that his servants should select from the multitude of revelations which come with each new dispensation those instructions which are especially significant on a long-range basis for them. It is a reflection on the Lord's love and confidence in his chosen servants that he allows them to decide which revelations they consider the most important. 
The Lord had his servants do this in our day, just as Jacob was instructed to do it in selecting the material which would go into the small plates. For because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people what things should happen unto them. And we also had many revelations and the spirit of much prophecy. Wherefore we knew of Christ and his kingdom which should come. Wherefore we labored diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God that they might enter into his rest lest by any means he should swear in his wrath that they should not enter in, as in the provocation in the days of temptation while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. So Jacob declared way back in the 6th century B.C. that they labored diligently to bring the American Israelites unto Christ so they could partake of the good news of God and enter into his rest. Otherwise, the spiritual leaders of the Nephites feared the Lord, who had blessed them so abundantly, would become disgusted with them and abandon them as he had abandoned the Lamanites and treat them as he did the children of Israel when they were condemned to wander in the wilderness for forty years. Wherefore, we would to God that we could persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ and view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. Wherefore I, Jacob, take it upon me to fulfill the commandment of my brother Nephi. We note that because so many Book of Mormon prophets had actually seen a vision of the Savior's crucifixion, they used the word symbol of the cross exactly the same way Paul later used it to represent the core of the plan of salvation. The whole program of redemption rests squarely upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Without it, all mankind would end up with Lucifer and his hosts. The emblem of the cross was therefore of tremendous significance down through the ages. As far back as 3500 B.C., Enoch was shown the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. Around 2200 B.C., the brother of Jared saw Jesus on the cross. Nephi also saw the crucifixion, and Jacob had seen it. Dr. Nibley points out that it has recently been discovered that the Book of Mormon reference to the cross in Old Testament times is not unique at all. Ancient documents showing that biblical people in ancient times commonly referred to the cross as the symbol of the atoning sacrifice of the coming Messiah. Now Nephi began to be old, and he saw that he must soon die. Wherefore he anointed a man to be a king and a ruler over his people now according to the reigns of the kings. The next task was to arrange the political affairs of the kingdom. When Nephi first established his colony in the city of Nephi, he refused to let the people call him king, even though he consented to govern them. It would appear, however, that with the passing of time, the title of king or ruler became so common among the people that Nephi allowed it to be used in connection with himself. Jacob says that when Nephi saw he was going to die, he anointed a man to be a king and a ruler. 
Thus began the reign of the kings in the Book of Mormon, which continued down to 91 B.C., when Mosiah II abandoned that Nephite system of electing monarchs and set up the Lord's system of government by judges. In this case, Jacob does not give us any details concerning the procedure for selecting a king, but we later learn that this was traditionally done by the voice of the people. So we assume Nephi's successor was presented for the approval of the people before he was anointed king. The people having loved Nephi exceedingly, he having been a great protector for them, having wielded the sword of Laban in their defense, and having labored in all his days for their welfare. Jacob says the people loved Nephi exceedingly, not only as a great prophet, but as a great protector. Ordinarily, we do not think of Nephi as a commanding general, but Jacob assures us that he had been. Nephi had wielded the famous sword of Laban in their defense in times of war, and during times of peace he had labored for their welfare. It is this verse which tells us that the prosperous city of Nephi had finally been discovered by the predatory Lamanites. Apparently, they had wandered up from their place of first inheritance and had stumbled onto the city of Nephi and had soon begun conducting raids on it. In these emergencies, Nephi had assumed the leadership and earned the title of their protector as he went forth to lay his life on the line in hand-to-hand combat defending his people. Wherefore the people were desirous to retain in remembrance his name, and whoso should reign in his stead were called by the people, second Nephi, third Nephi, and so forth, according to the reigns of the kings. And thus they were called by the people, let them be of whatever name they would. So the people were anxious to retain the remembrance of his name. They therefore resolved to call their rulers after the name of Nephi, just as the Egyptians had called all their rulers Pharaoh after the first ruler of Egypt, he being the oldest son of Egyptus who discovered that land. And it came to pass that Nephi died. Finally, Jacob tells us the words which we are reluctant to hear. He says, Nephi died. Up to this point in the Book of Mormon, the reader cannot help but identify himself with the magnificent character of Nephi. He is almost too good to be true. It comes as a shock to suddenly realize that this is the last time we will have contact with the words and deeds of this beloved, faithful, spectacular personality. Now let us pause for a moment to consider the highlights of the life of this great man. As far as we can surmise, Nephi was born around 616 B.C. He was a direct descendant of Joseph who was sold into Egypt and came through the lineage of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. Even as a late teenager, Nephi was large in stature and very strong. He was educated and trained by his own father, and this included not only moral training, but skill in reading and writing of Egyptian, working in all manner of wood, constructing buildings as elaborate as Solomon's temple, smelting, refining, and tooling artifacts of iron, copper, brass, steel, gold, and silver. He was also trained in breaking and domesticating horses and oxen. He gained skill as a hunter of wild game, using both a steel and a wooden bow, and he was also good with a sling like David of old. Nephi had remarkable spiritual attributes of the most powerful kind, 
This gave him granite-like faith in the Lord and confidence that he could accomplish anything the Lord commanded him to do. He was a pillar of strength to his father and carried out his father's instructions implicitly, regardless of the odds. Because of his faithfulness, Nephi received a great many extraordinary revelations. As suggested previously, he is thought to be one of the very few persons allowed to see and talk with the heavenly messengers known to us as the Holy Ghost. He saw the famous tree of life, the allegory his father had seen. He saw the Virgin Mary. He saw the Savior as a child. He traced the Savior's ministry, saw his crucifixion, resurrection, and the ministry of the apostles after him. He knew of the terrible destruction which would convulse the Western Hemisphere at the time of the Savior's death, and he saw that after the Savior's resurrection, he would visit the saints in America. Nephi was not only prophetically acquainted with the Virgin Mary, whose striking beauty was extremely impressive to Nephi, by the way, <laughs> but he was acquainted with the lives and missions of John the Baptist, John the Beloved, and Joseph Smith the Modern Prophet. Nephi knew his own descendants would be destroyed as a people, and the remnants would intermingle with the Lamanites, but he also knew that eventually the Western Hemisphere would be discovered by Columbus, that the Spanish, French, and other Gentile nations of Europe would drive and plunder the Indians. He knew that the American colonists would win the Revolutionary War, that the Lord would raise up a choice servant from among the Gentiles to restore the gospel, and that his name would be Joseph as well as his father. Nephi knew an amazing quantity of details concerning the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, including the fact that some of the words of the book would be presented by Martin Harris to one of America's foremost classical scholars in that day, Professor Charles Anton of Columbia University. He knew the gold plates would be seen by three special witnesses and a few others who would be named by the Lord. Now a few additional details. Nephi not only knew a lot, he did a lot. His life was literally saturated with supremely dramatic experiences. After spending his early life in a luxurious home, where his father had accumulated all the comforts and wealth of a successful merchant prince, Nephi had the highly disturbing shock of seeing his father's life threatened. This is particularly traumatic in view of the fact that Lehi was undoubtedly a man of considerable prestige and influence in his own right, almost like a member of the Jerusalem Rotary Club. Nevertheless, to save his life and fulfill a commandment of the Lord, Nephi saw his father and all their family abandon their townhouse in Jerusalem and their beautiful family estate in the country and embark on an unknown venture into an unknown destination. Later, in returning to get the brass plates upon which the scriptures of the tribe of Joseph were inscribed, Nephi and his brothers barely escaped being killed by Laban's soldiers. Nephi subsequently received a good beating from his older brothers for his suggestion that they trade their family treasure for the plates of Laban that the Lord had commanded them to obtain and take to the promised land. But that very same night, under inspiration, he was successful in obtaining the plates of Laban after a hair-raising experience which could have easily gotten him killed. On a second trip back to the land of Jerusalem to invite Ishmael's family to join the trek, 
Nephi barely escaped being killed on the desert. His brothers bound him and were going to leave him helpless to be devoured by wild beasts. Only through the intervention of some of the members of Ishmael's family did Nephi escape. While crossing 2,500 miles of desolate wilderness in eight years, Nephi was the principal provider. When he broke his steel bow in the mountains, which is believed to have been near Medina, the entire party nearly starved to death. It was only after he had improvised a wooden bow that he was able to kill the wild game which saved their lives. Even so, at Nahum, his other brothers tried to kill Nephi and his father. It was only by the Lord's intervention that their lives were spared. Later at Bountiful, where Nephi was commanded by the Lord to build a boat, these same brothers would have drowned Nephi by throwing him into the sea had not the Lord again intervened. Nephi did build the boat with the brothers finally agreeing to help and sailed halfway round the world to the western shores of America. He then separated from his brothers while they were fomenting their fourth murder plot against him. He escaped into the wilderness with his followers, where he built his own city with a temple, fine homes, and the basic institutions for a highly ordered civilization. Eventually, of course, the marauding raiders from the camps of his brothers found his hideout, and Nephi had to take up the sword to prevent his people from being annihilated. Such was the life of Nephi. Now the people which were not Lamanites were Nephites. Nevertheless, they were called Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites. But I, Jacob, shall not hereafter distinguish them by these names. But I shall call them Lamanites, that seek to destroy the people of Nephi. And those who are friendly to Nephi, I shall call Nephites, or the people of Nephi, according to the reigns of the kings. As Jacob begins his account, he says he is going to refer to the people either as allies or enemies. He's going to call everybody Lamanites who seek to destroy the people of Nephi. And he's going to call everybody Nephites who were friendly to Nephi and his ideas of government and religion. And now it came to pass that the people of Nephi, under the reign of the second king, began to grow hard in their hearts and indulged themselves somewhat in wicked practices, such as like unto David of old, desiring many wives and concubines, and also Solomon his son. Yea, and they also began to search much gold and silver, and began to be lifted up somewhat in pride. Wherefore I, Jacob, gave unto them these words, as I taught them in the temple, having first obtained mine errand from the Lord. Shortly after Nephi passed away, Jacob noticed that under the reign of Nephi II, the people had begun to grow hard in their hearts and indulge themselves in wicked practices. They claimed they were copying the practices of David and Solomon in acquiring many wives and concubines. There was also a great concentration of effort in acquiring vast quantities of gold and silver and other precious things. But Jacob was not the only one who was exercised over the deterioration that was beginning to take place among the people. When Jacob presented the problem to the Lord, he was given an errand. He was instructed to gather the people together at the temple and call them to repentance. 
For I, Jacob, and my brother Joseph have been consecrated priests and teachers of this people by the hand of Nephi. And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. Jacob reminds us that his brother Joseph had also been consecrated a priest and teacher by Nephi in order to help him in his work. Jacob wants us to know that he and his brother took their callings in the priesthood very seriously. They were not just Levitical priests, but holders of the Melchizedek priesthood. Jacob and Joseph took upon themselves as leaders of the people the responsibility for their welfare, and even answered upon their own heads the sins of the people if they did not teach them to do better. This helped us to appreciate Jacob's attitude as he prepared to give his famous temple sermon commencing in the next chapter. Jacob chapter 2 The words which Jacob, the brother of Nephi, spake unto the people of Nephi after the death of Nephi. Now, my beloved brethren, I, Jacob, according to the responsibility which I am under to God, to magnify mine office with soberness, and that I might rid my garments of your sins, I come up into the temple this day, that I might declare unto you the word of God. As the people gathered in the great court of the congregation outside the temple, Jacob began his sermon. Later Jacob recorded what he had said. He introduced the sermon by saying that it contained the words of Jacob the brother of Nephi, which was taught to the people after the death of Nephi. Jacob said this sermon became necessary because of his responsibility to God to magnify his office as head of the church with soberness. He said it was essential that he assert himself in this manner to rid his garments of the sins of the people. Jacob said he had not come to moralize or to teach the precepts of men, but the word of God. And ye yourselves know that I have hitherto been diligent in the office of my calling, but I this day am weighed down with much more desire and anxiety for the welfare of your souls than I have hitherto been. For behold, as yet ye have been obedient unto the word of the Lord which I have given unto you. But behold, hearken ye unto me, and know that by the help of the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth, I can tell you concerning your thoughts, how that ye are beginning to labor in sin, which sin appeareth very abominable unto me, yea, and abominable unto God. Yea, it grieveth my soul, and causeth me to shrink with shame before the presence of my Maker that I must testify unto you concerning the wickedness of your hearts. Jacob reminded them that in the past he had been diligent in fulfilling his calling, but on this day he felt weighed down with a greater anxiety for their souls than ever before. He said that up to this time they had been obedient to the word of the Lord which Jacob had given them, but now through the inspiration of God, Jacob was able to read their thoughts. 
he was able to discern that they were beginning to indulge themselves in sins, and it was the kind of sin which was extremely abominable to Jacob and also to God. Jacob said this latest development among the people made him shrink with shame before God as he came to expose what the people were doing. And also it grieveth me that I must use so much boldness of speech concerning you before your wives and your children, many of whose feelings are exceedingly tender and chaste and delicate before God, which thing is pleasing unto God. And it supposeth me that they have come up hither to hear the pleasing word of God, yea, the word which healeth the wounded soul. Wherefore it burdeneth my soul that I should be constrained, because of the strict commandment which I have received from God, to admonish you according to your crimes, to enlarge the wounds of those who are already wounded, instead of consoling and healing their wounds, and those who have not been wounded, instead of feasting upon the pleasing word of God, have daggers placed to pierce their souls and wound their delicate minds. He was embarrassed that he had to disclose these abominations before the families of those who were guilty because their feelings were tender and chaste. It is obvious from this verse that Jacob was going to disclose what some of these men had been doing secretly, and therefore it would come as a great shock to many of their wives and children. Jacob knew the women and children had come to this conference expecting to hear the pleasing word of God. They had come to be inspired and renewed in their souls. That was why it was particularly painful to him to have to fulfill the strict commandment of God and use the time of this conference to admonish these men for their crimes. Jacob said that what he had to disclose would not console the women and children who had come to be spiritually fed, but his words would be like daggers which would pierce their souls and wound their delicate minds. Note the eloquence of Jacob. His style of forceful expression is quite different from the rather simple and direct style of expression used by Nephi. But notwithstanding the greatness of the task, I must do according to the strict commands of God, and tell you concerning your wickedness and abominations in the presence of the pure in heart and the broken heart, and under the glance of the piercing eye of the Almighty God. Wherefore I must tell you the truth according to the plainness of the word of God. For behold, as I inquired of the Lord, thus came the word unto me, saying, Jacob, get thou up into the temple on the morrow, and declare the word which I shall give thee unto this people. Jacob said he would now fulfill his painful duty to deliver this distasteful message in the presence of the pure in heart. On the evening before, in preparation for this great conference, Jacob said he had inquired of the Lord what he should emphasize in his message to the people. And now behold, my brethren, this is the word which I declare unto you, that many of you have begun to search for gold and for silver and for all manner of precious ores, in the which this land, which is a land of promise unto you and to your seed, doth abound most plentifully. And the hand of providence hath smiled upon you most pleasingly, that you have obtained many riches, 
and because some of you have obtained more abundantly than that of your brethren, ye are lifted up in the pride of your hearts, and wear stiff necks and high heads because of the costliness of your apparel. And persecute your brethren because ye suppose that ye are better than they. And now, my brethren, do ye suppose that God justifieth you in this thing? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he condemneth you. And if ye persist in these things, his judgments must speedily come unto you. Oh, that he would show you that he can pierce you, and with one glance of his eye he can smite you to the dust. Oh, that he would rid you from this iniquity and abomination, and, oh, that ye would listen unto the word of his commands, and let not this pride of your hearts destroy your souls. First of all, Jacob said the men had begun spending more and more time searching for gold and silver and other precious ores which abound in this land so plentifully. In these mining adventures, the men had been blessed with remarkable success. However, some had obtained more riches than others and thought this made them somehow superior to those with less. Therefore, they were lifted up in pride and wore stiff necks as they smugly strutted about, showing off the costliness of their apparel. They even began to abuse or persecute the more humble brethren who had not been quite so fortunate. Jacob challenged them. They stood condemned by Almighty God, and unless they repented of this stupid sense of pride and false superiority, Jacob predicted the judgment of God would descend upon them speedily. At the rate things were going, Jacob felt the sooner something happened to these men, the better it would be. He wished they could realize that with a single glance of his eye, God could smite them into the dust. Jacob longed to have something happen to them so that their silly pride would not destroy their souls. Think of your brethren like unto yourselves, and be familiar with all, and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. But before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them, and ye will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, and to feed the hungry, and to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. Jacob said they must obey what Jesus would later preach as the second great commandment. They should love their brethren or neighbors like unto themselves. Jacob said they should be free with the less fortunate and generous with their riches, so that eventually all might be rich in the good things of life. We should pause here to note that sharing riches with others must be done prudently, or it will corrupt rather than bless those who receive them. King Benjamin will later emphasize how this must be done in wisdom and order, just as it is done in our modern welfare program, where means are provided so that the poor can be more effective in helping themselves. Jacob then gave his famous declaration concerning the seeking of riches. Note that he looks upon riches as blessings from God, and the means by which men can do much good. 
However, as Paul points out, to go after riches just to be rich is abominable before God and a snare to the greedy souls who practice it. That is why Paul bluntly declared that the love of money is the root of all evil, and he said that in Timothy 6 and 10. Jacob said that before a person goes out to make his fortune in the world, he should first seek the kingdom of God. This means that he should repent of his sins, enter into a covenant with the Lord, and commit himself to a life of service and responsibility before God. Then he is prepared to go forth and garner together those things which will be a blessing to himself and his family, as well as to his neighbors. This is the Lord's way. Jacob told his listeners that after they obtain a hope in Christ, it is entirely appropriate to go forth and work diligently to garner together the good things of the earth. However, they were to seek them for the intent to do good. He furnished them with some specific examples of clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, liberating the captive, that is, people under bond for indebtedness, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. And now, my brethren, I have spoken unto you concerning pride, and those of you which have afflicted your neighbor and persecuted him, because ye were proud in your hearts of the things which God hath given you, what say ye of it? Do ye not suppose that such things are abominable unto him who created all flesh? And the one being is as precious in his sight as the other and all flesh is of the dust. And for the selfsame end hath he created them, that they should keep his commandments and glorify him forever. Jacob decides now to recapitulate. He summarizes all he has said about their pride, their selfishness, their pseudo-superiority, and then asks, What say ye? Without waiting for an answer, Jacob demanded that they ask themselves if these things were not abominable in the sight of God. He reminded them that all mankind are precious in the sight of the Lord, all fleshes of the earth, all will soon die. Therefore, it is important that we use our time to keep God's commandments and glorify the Lord by living righteously and humbly before him. And now I make an end of speaking unto you concerning this pride. And were it not that I must speak unto you concerning a grosser crime, my heart would rejoice exceedingly because of you. But the word of God burthens me because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, This people begin to wax in iniquity. They understand not the Scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon his son. At this point, Jacob said he had presented all he intended to say about pride. In fact, he said he would rejoice if that was all the admonishing that he was required to give them during this conference. Unfortunately, however, he said it was now necessary to speak of the grosser crimes being committed among the people. This is the part of his sermon which Jacob was most reluctant to cover. The admonition on pride would not have been like daggers to the souls of the women and children, but this next part of his sermon would be. 
Jacob said that what the Lord had revealed to him concerning the grosser crimes was a great burden to him. He said he had learned that they were beginning to commit whoredoms, in secret apparently, and justifying themselves by quoting from the brass plates concerning David and Solomon. Behold, David and Solomon truly had many wives and concubines. Which thing was abominable before me, saith the Lord? Wherefore thus saith the Lord, I have led this people forth out of the land of Jerusalem by the power of mine arm, that I might raise up unto me a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. Wherefore I, the Lord God, will not suffer that this people shall do like unto them of old. Wherefore, my brethren, hear me, and hearken to the word of the Lord. For there shall not any man among you have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. Jacob told them it was true that David and Solomon had indeed had many wives and concubines, and that what they had done was abominable in the sight of God. On first reading, this passage creates some confusion, because it almost sounds as though the Lord always considers multiple families to be an abomination. The Lord clarified it in a modern scripture in which he said, that the many wives and concubines of David and Solomon were an abomination in his sight to the extent that they were taken without the sanction of the Lord. Here is the way the Lord says it, quote, David also received many wives and concubines, and also Solomon and Moses, my servants, and also many other of my servants from the beginning of the creation until this time. And in nothing did they sin, save in those things which they received not of me. Now that's a quotation directly from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 38. The Lord goes on to say that David's great offense was in coveting the wife of Uriah. Solomon's offense was his action at the very end of his life when he tried to hold the kingdom together by entering into numerous political marriages. The scripture says that when Solomon was old, he took unto himself 700 princesses of various aristocratic families and 300 concubines as well. That's a reference to 1 Kings 11, verses 3 to 4. Many of these were heathen women and idolaters, it says in 1 Kings 1 and 1. However, there is no record of Solomon having any children through any of these marital alliances. They appear to have been undertaken when he was too old to have children, but were considered necessary in order to maintain political solidarity, a common custom in those days. However, they were unauthorized and clearly an abomination before the Lord. The only mitigating circumstance seems to be the fact that this breach of an otherwise brilliant life occurred after Solomon appeared to have entered into a period of senility just before his death. I discussed this subject in the 4,000 years, pages 270 to 277. Jacob said the Lord wanted the people to realize that their arrival in America was no accident. They were brought here by the power of God's mighty arm. It had been done so that the Lord could raise up a righteous branch of those who were descendants of Joseph. The Lord was determined not to allow the Nephites then to enmesh themselves 
in the abominations of ancient times. Jacob then laid down the general and basic law of marriage under which all men and women are obligated to live unless they receive a direct revelation from the Lord to do otherwise. The law is that a man must not have, save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. For I, the Lord God, delight in the chastity of women, and whoredoms are an abomination before me, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Wherefore this people shall keep my commandments, saith the Lord of hosts, or cursed be the land for their sakes. For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, Otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. The strict pattern for marriage is to protect and honor the chastity of women in which God delights. Whoredoms have always been an abomination in the sight of God. Unless this and other commandments were kept by the Nephites, God said the land would be cursed for their sakes. The only exception which the Lord makes to the rule of monogamy is when it is His will to raise up seed to the Lord. In that case, he will specifically command the people to do so. In the absence of any such revelation, the people are bound to the rule of monogamy as set forth above. Even when multiple marriages have been mandated by the Lord to raise up seed unto him, such marriages are under very strict rules laid down by the Lord. First of all, no plural marriage is allowed unless the Lord has authorized it. Secondly, no man can enter into a plural marriage unless his first wife has approved it. This is called the law of Sarah, which is Abraham's wife, and it is mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 65. For behold, I the Lord have seen the sorrow and heard the mourning of the daughters of my people in the land of Jerusalem, yea, and in all the lands of my people, because of the wickedness and abominations of their husbands. And I will not suffer, saith the Lord of hosts, that the cries of the fair daughters of this people, which I have led out of the land of Jerusalem, shall come up unto me against the men of my people, saith the Lord of hosts. For they shall not lead away captive the daughters of my people because of their tenderness, save I shall visit them with a sore curse, even unto destruction. For they shall not commit whoredoms like unto them of old, saith the Lord of hosts. And now behold, my brethren, ye know that these commandments were given to our father Lehi. Wherefore ye have known them before and ye have come unto great condemnation. For ye have done these things which ye ought not to have done. The Lord said he saw the heartbreak and the sorrow which immoral and unauthorized unions inflicted on the women who were in mourning. Now that the Nephites had been led out of their own land to America, the Lord said he would not suffer the Nephite men to inflict this type of sorrow and heartbreak on the Nephite women. The Lord pronounced a curse on even unto destruction. If the Nephite men tried to seduce the daughters of the Nephites who were in their years of innocence and tenderness 
to engage in unauthorized secret marriages or commit other immoral acts with them. Jacob then reminded the men of his congregation that this commandment of strict monogamy was not anything new. It had been given originally to Father Lehi. The men of this congregation had therefore violated this commandment knowingly and were under great condemnation. Behold, ye have done greater iniquities than the Lamanites, our brethren. Ye have broken the hearts of your tender wives and lost the confidence of your children because of your bad examples before them and the sobbings of their hearts ascend up to God against you. And because of the strictness of the word of God which cometh down against you, many hearts died, pierced with deep wounds. Jacob compared these men with the Lamanites and said their iniquities were greater than the Lamanites by pretending that they were simply following the example of David and Solomon. They had induced their wives to accept their evil practices which is probably the reason it remained a secret. However, their bad examples had broken the hearts of their wives and destroyed the confidence of their children. The Book of Jacob, Chapter 3 But behold, I, Jacob, would speak unto you that are pure in heart. Look unto God with firmness of mind, and pray unto him with exceeding faith, and he will console you in your afflictions, and he will plead your cause, and send down justice upon those who seek your destruction. O all ye that are pure in heart, lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God, and feast upon his love. For ye may, if your minds are firm, forever. Jacob realizes that the words he has previously spoken could not help but cause consternation among the wives and families of his congregation. Each wife could not help but wonder whether God's revelation applied to her husband. Each husband who was guilty of infidelity would also be alarmed by Jacob's unexpected disclosure of their indiscretion. Furthermore, in this congregation, there were women who had secretly engaged in plural marriages contrary to the commandments of God given to Father Lehi. Jacob addressed himself, first of all, by way of comfort to the pure in heart. He said that in this time of trial, they should pray to the Lord with exceeding faith that he might console them and bring down justice upon those who had been seeking to destroy the virtue of the innocent. But woe, woe unto you that are not pure in heart, that are filthy this day before God. For except ye repent, the land is cursed for your sakes. And the Lamanites, which are not filthy like unto you, nevertheless they are cursed with a sore cursing, shall scourge you even unto destruction. And the time speedily cometh, that except ye repent, they shall possess the land of your inheritance, and the Lord God will lead away the righteous out from among you. Then Jacob turned in wrath on those who were filthy before God that day. He said, unless they reformed, the demands of those who were not filthy in the betrayal of their families would scourge the wicked Nephites even to destruction. 
Jacob predicted that unless these Nephite men repented, they would lose the entire land of inheritance to the Lamanites. Behold, the Lamanites, your brethren, whom ye hate because of their filthiness and the cursing which hath come upon their skins, are more righteous than you. For they have not forgotten the commandment of the Lord, which was given unto our fathers, that they should have, save it were one wife, and concubines they should have none, and there should not be whoredoms committed among them. And now this commandment they observe to keep. Wherefore, because of this observance in keeping this commandment, the Lord God will not destroy them, but will be merciful unto them, and one day they shall become a blessed people. Behold, their husbands love their wives, and their wives love their husbands, and their husbands and their wives love their children, and their unbelief and their hatred towards you is because of the iniquity of their fathers. Wherefore, how much better are you than they in the sight of your great Creator? Jacob chastised the Nephite men who were guilty of secret marriages, saying that they hated the Lamanites because of their filthiness, but the Lamanites were more righteous than many of the Nephites with reference to marital integrity, and they had only one wife, and concubines they had none. That is why Jacob predicted that because of the respect which the Lamanites had for their families, the Lord would never allow them to be destroyed from the face of the Western Hemisphere. Jacob also predicted that one day they would be a blessed people. O oh, my brethren, I fear that unless ye shall repent of your sins, that their skins will be whiter than yours, when ye shall be brought with them before the throne of God. Wherefore a commandment I give unto you, which is the word of God, that ye revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins. Neither shall ye revile against them because of their filthiness, but ye shall remember your own filthiness, and remember that their filthiness came because of their fathers. Wherefore ye shall remember your children, how that ye have grieved their hearts because of the example that ye have set before them. And also remember that ye may, because of your filthiness, bring your children unto destruction." and their sins be heaped upon your heads at the last day. Jacob said he had a command for the Nephite people which came directly from the Lord. He said the Nephites were to no longer revile the Lamanites. The Nephites were to concentrate on their own brand of filthiness and remind themselves that the benighted condition of the Lamanites was almost entirely because of their fathers. O oh, my brethren, Hearken unto my word, arouse the faculties of your soul, shake yourselves that ye may awake from the slumber of death, and loose yourselves from the pains of hell, that ye may not become angels to the devil, to be cast into that lake of fire and brimstone which is the second death. And now I, Jacob, spake many more things unto the people of Nephi, warning them against fornication and lasciviousness and every kind of sin, telling them the awful consequences of them. This verse is worth memorizing. Jacob pled with the Nephites to arouse the faculties of their souls. 
He said they should shake themselves and wake up from the slumber of death into which they were sinking. He earnestly urged them to loose themselves from the pains of hell, for if they did not, they would become angels of the devil and suffer the devil's fate, which is the second death. It is likened unto a person being thrown into a lake of fire and brimstone. Actually, this is the fate of the sons of perdition. But all of the wicked taste a portion of this torment until they have paid the uttermost farthing. And a hundredth part of the proceedings of this people, which now began to be numerous, cannot be written upon these plates. But many of their proceedings are written upon the larger plates, and their wars, and their contentions, and the reigns of their kings. These plates are called the plates of Jacob, and they were made by the hand of Nephi. And I make an end of speaking these words. Jacob explains that the plates he was writing were the plates of Jacob, which had previously been made by the hands of Nephi. Apparently he was trying to tell us that he was writing his plates, or the book of Jacob, upon the smaller set of plates which Nephi had prepared. Jacob said that he would make an end of speaking or writing at that time, apparently intending to take up the task later on. Jacob chapter 4 Now behold, it came to pass that I, Jacob, having ministered much unto my people in word, and I cannot write but a little of my words because of the difficulty of engraving our words upon plates, and we know that the things which we write upon plates must remain. But whatsoever things we write upon anything, save it be upon plates, must perish and vanish away. But we can write a few words upon plates, which will give our children and also our beloved brethren a small degree of knowledge concerning us, or concerning their fathers. It would appear that Jacob picked up his stylus to continue his writing toward the end of his life, and long after he had written the three chapters which we have just finished. Jacob wanted us to know that he had done a tremendous amount of preaching and teaching in his day, but could not write much of it because of the difficulty in engraving their words on metal plates. This was a slow and tedious task, but a most important one. At least they knew that whatever they painfully inscribed on metal plates would survive. If they wrote on anything but metal plates, Jacob said it would perish and vanish away. Therefore he said they were determined to record for their children, that is, the remnant of their descendants who would receive these things in the subsequent generations, a small degree of knowledge concerning their fathers. Now in this thing we do rejoice, and we labor diligently to engraven these words upon plates, hoping that our beloved brethren and our children will receive them with thankful hearts, and look upon them that they may learn with joy and not with sorrow, neither with contempt, concerning their first parents. For for this intent have we written these things, that they may know that we knew of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. 
All of this hard work was done in a spirit of rejoicing because through these plates they hoped their brethren and their children might be thankful to possess them and to learn with joy rather than sorrow and contempt something concerning their parents. Jacob, of course, along with the other Nephite prophets, knew that when this record came forth, the remnants of Lehi's children would be in a low state of civilization and might therefore tend to think of their ancestors with contempt. Behold, they believed in Christ and worshipped the Father in his name, and also we worship the Father in his name. And for this intent we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him. And for this cause it is sanctified unto us for righteousness, even as it was accounted unto Abraham in the wilderness to be obedient unto the commands of God in offering up his son Isaac, which is a similitude of God and his only begotten son. Jacob said he and the other prophets wanted their descendants to know that clear back in the sixth century before Christ, their fathers knew of Christ and had hope in his glory. He said this was true of all of the prophets from the very beginning of time. Isaiah said the ancient prophets believed in Christ and worshipped the Father in his name. Jacob said the same thing was being done in his day, and that was why they kept the law of Moses, because it pointed the people toward Jesus Christ. Jacob said that keeping the law was accounted to them for righteousness, just as the faith of Abraham was accounted to him for righteousness. Jacob then said that Abraham's offering of Isaac was merely a similitude of the father and how he would feel when his only begotten son would be sacrificed. This is a choice passage and the only one which clearly states that Abraham's offering of Isaac was a teaching device designed to help Abraham appreciate more deeply what a terrible ordeal our Heavenly Father had to endure at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Wherefore we search the prophets, and we have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy. And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. Jacob also wanted his descendants to know that he and his contemporaries were diligent students of the ancient prophets, and that God had given them many revelations and an abundance of prophecy so that their faith was unshaken. Jacob said that in the name of Jesus, the trees would obey them, even the mountains and the waves of the sea. This is an extremely interesting statement. Only rarely does God give any of his servants power over the elements. Everything God has organized in the universe has intelligences in it, which moves and has its being according to God's order and command. The existence of this life substance or elaborate system of organized intelligences in nature makes it possible to communicate with them when authorized by God, and commanded to obey specific instructions. Abraham refers to the intelligent capacity of the elements to obey when the great creation was in progress. He says, quote, And the gods watched these things which they had ordered until they obeyed. 
and that's quoting Abraham chapter 4, verse 18. Brigham Young referred on a number of occasions to the life substance or intelligences which exist in matter, and he said it exists, quote, in all matter throughout all the vast extent of all the eternities. It is in the rock, the sand, in water, air, the gases, and in short, in every description and organization of matter, whether it be solid, liquid, or gaseous, particle operating with particle. And that's in the Discourses of Brigham Young, the 1925 edition, page 566. Jacob wanted subsequent generations to know that he and his associates were among those rare priesthood holders who were allowed by God to communicate with these great forces of intelligence and nature. Nevertheless, the Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by His grace and His great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of Him! And it is impossible that man should find out all his ways, and no man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelations of God. However, in spite of these marvelous powers which the members of the priesthood enjoyed among the early Nephites, Jacob wanted us to know that the Lord gave them ample evidence of their own individual weaknesses or limitations so that they would always be aware that it was by the grace and the great condescension of God that they were able to do these things. Jacob marveled at the ways of the Lord. He saw that it was absolutely impossible to search out the depths, powers, and procedures of God in accomplishing his great purposes unless they were revealed to man. Jacob emphasizes that no matter how shocking or contrary to human imagination God's ways turn out to be, man must not despise these great revelations when these truths are disclosed. For behold, by the power of his word man came upon the face of the earth, which earth was created by the power of his word. Wherefore, if God being able to speak, and the world was, and to speak, and man was created. Oh, then, why not able to command the earth or the workmanship of his hands upon the face of it, according to his will and pleasure? Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works." Jacob then emphasizes what we have already discussed, namely that by merely speaking to the organized intelligences in matter, God is able to command and then watch until he is obeyed. That's exactly what Abraham says in chapter 14, verse 18. Jacob commented on what a marvelous and amazing thing this was, that God would bring into being great organized systems merely by the power of his word. Jacob said that in view of all this, puny man must not try to counsel God as to what is best, but seek counsel from God. Human experience teaches us that God has always counseled that which is wise and just and merciful. 
Wherefore, beloved brethren, be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ, his only begotten Son, and ye may obtain a resurrection according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ, and be presented as the first fruits of Christ unto God, having faith and obtained a good hope of glory in him before he manifesteth himself in the flesh. Jacob then appealed directly to his beloved brethren who would read these writings in the next few hundred years. He urged them to be reconciled to God through the atonement of Christ so that they could partake of the powers of the resurrection, which is in Christ. They could then come forth after Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection. Later in Helaman chapter 14, verse 25, we shall read of Samuel the Lamanite predicting that the saints who had believed on Christ before his coming in the flesh would be resurrected with Christ and minister to the saints then living upon the earth. In 3 Nephi chapter 23, verses 9 to 11, it is verified that that which Jacob and Samuel the Lamanite promised the people actually did come to pass. And now, beloved, marvel not that I tell you these things, for why not speak of the atonement of Christ and attain to a perfect knowledge of him? as to attain to the knowledge of a resurrection and the world to come. Jacob was laying a foundation for a better understanding of the need and the method by which the atonement of Jesus Christ achieves the ends designed by the Father. And he asked, should not he speak freely and clearly of the atonement, just as they do of the resurrection and the things of the next life? Behold, my brethren, he that prophesieth, let him prophesy to the understanding of men. For the Spirit speaketh the truth, and lieth not. Wherefore it speaketh of things as they really are, and of things as they really will be. Wherefore these things are manifested unto us plainly, for the salvation of our souls. But behold, we are not witnesses alone in these things, for God also spake them unto prophets of old. Jacob said that any person who had his mind open to the visions of the future should prophesy so it would be plainly understood. He said that whenever the Spirit reveals something, it speaks in terms of reality, disclosing things as they really are, as they really were, and as they will be. All of this is manifested very plainly in the salvation of mankind. Jacob emphasized that there was nothing new in these things because they had also been witnessed by the prophets of old. But behold, the Jews were a stiff-necked people, and they despised the words of plainness and killed the prophets and sought for things that they could not understand. Wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark, they must needs fall. For God hath taken away his plainness from them, and delivered unto them many things which they cannot understand, because they desired it. And because they desired it, God hath done it, that they may stumble. Many things the ancient prophets were told became lost, and Jacob wants the reader to know why. He said the Jews who had custody of the records were often a stiff-necked people. 
and of course over our ancestors, the Ephraimites. They despised the words of plainness which God had revealed and killed the prophets. Then they went running after mysteries that they could not understand. As a result of this, their minds suffered from lack of understanding, which is blindness. And their blindness came about because they were constantly looking beyond the mark. Now, the true mark is what God has revealed. It's simple and it's beautiful, but it did not satisfy them. So they lost the plain, simple truth and replaced it with mysteries that they couldn't understand. This then came about not by God's will, but because they desired it. Therefore, the Lord had allowed it to come to pass that they might stumble and thereby learn a much-needed lesson. And now I, Jacob, am led on by the Spirit unto prophesying. For I perceive by the workings of the Spirit which is in me that by the stumbling of the Jews they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. But behold, according to the Scriptures, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. Apparently Jacob was going to stop, but he said he was led by the Spirit to prophesy. He said that as a result of this stumbling among the Jews, they would not comprehend enough of their own scripture to recognize the Savior when he came among them. Therefore they would reject him, the very stone which God had prepared for their salvation. Isaiah had predicted the same thing when he said, quote, And he, that is the coming of the Messiah, shall be for a sanctuary. But, as it turned out, it was a stone of a stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the house of Israel and for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Unquote. That's from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Jacob said this stone was the only foundation upon which the Jews, or anyone else for that matter, could build and have a safe foundation. To emphasize his point, Jacob declared that the scriptures plainly teach that Jesus Christ, or the stone, is the great and the last and only sure foundation on which the Jews can build. Now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? Jacob posed a challenging question. If the stone was designed by God to become the head of the corner or the cornerstone for the Jews, how could this be brought about if they rejected him? Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you. If I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the Spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. Jacob promised to unfold this great mystery, providing he was not shaken loose from the Spirit which was in him and stumbled because of his zeal and anxiety for his future brethren. We hope you're enjoying this podcast by W. Cleon Skousen. To find additional books and recordings on this and other topics, please visit skousenlibrary.com.